book of the board game is anonymous the podcast about board gamers and the insane fun we have at the table together this is chris hey and this is anthony and this is episode 286 listener feedback we'd like to thank all of our patreon backers for helping us bring you a brand new episode all right anthony so we are back it's nice to have you back you were living under a rock for a little bit it wasn't under a rock it was a uh, among rocks <laughs> adjacent to many adjacent rocks to some rocks yeah that <laughs> no, was cool we took the family camping for the first time none of them had been including my wife i haven't honestly been camping in i don't know 10 15 years definitely before the first kid was born so it's been a while but back in high school and college i went camping constantly you know dozen or more times a year so it was like there was some muscle memory there like i still know how to put up a tent i still know how to use this axe hey i know how to start a fire look at this (laughs) it was pretty cool all those good uh boy scout years of training have finally you know come in handy it's in there man it is like deep in my brain somewhere i you wouldn't think that it would stay around that well but you know they train you well Um, i know same here my friend Played a bunch of board games. Uh, my kids are now obsessed with Skull King, of all games. Oh, wow. So my five-year-old is amazing at it. <laughs> she's got like, She looks at her hands of cards, and she's like, I know what to bid. I'm good. It's it's And she's spot on. Like She's won like three or four of the games we've played. So nice. I don't know how. <laughs> very, very cool. So we're so glad to have you back. Obviously, Gen Con Online wrapped up. We talked about that last episode. Our friend Chris jumped on and helped us out with that and and talked about two of our favorite designers, uh, Daniel Trishini and David Turi, and a really fun episode. So if you haven't listened to that, definitely check back. But for this episode, it's all about all of you. It's our listener feedback episode. We try to do this at least once a year and take all of your questions you've always wanted to know about BGA and throw down an episode, answer everything completely honestly, and hopefully give you some of the inside features, thoughts, and process about BGA. Yeah, no, it's a ton of fun. I mean, we always put out the call for questions, and we always get good ones, but this year we get a lot of good ones. So I actually had to sort them out and organize them and see where they overlapped, and we'll see how it goes. We have a bunch of stuff to get through, but <laughs> you guys have a lot of great questions and a lot of really, really nice comments. like. I'm not going to read all those because it feels a little, I don't know, self-congratulatory, but I just want to say thank you to everybody who said, you know, you know, how much you listen or how much you like the show or how important we are in your own schedules and, and everything. That stuff is really, really cool. We always do really appreciate it. So if you haven't gotten a chance to get online and let us know what questions you'd like us to answer, please still hit us up. You can get to us on BoardGamersAnonymous.com, our guild on Board Game Geek, obviously Facebook is the best place where you can get your questions of the week because so many questions are hit up on that site, but also on Twitter, on YouTube. We have a YouTube account, surprisingly enough. So if you want to listen to us there, you can hit us there. And obviously any of the podcast platforms out there, we read the reviews out there. So if you want to drop a question and review, we would greatly appreciate it. And once again, thank you for everything that you do. Thank you for spreading the great word of BGA. And thank you so much for joining us at the table. So Rico has a statement for us, and he wants us to take a side on this and debate it. So Ooh. 
He says, each of you take a side and debate the following statement. Unboxing, punching, and sorting a new game is a perfectly valid way to engage in the hobby. I think we have the same opinion, but I'll play devil's advocate if I need to. What do you you think? (laughs) I remember not too long ago, somebody posted somewhere on social media that they collected this whole series of games and they were like i finally got the collection it's it's all complete but you could tell that everything was still new and shrink so i was like oh they collected all of that collection but they haven't played the game so have they really achieved that board gaming kind of achievement so to speak because they they haven't been played so I'm going to go along with that because I I do think that while collecting board games with its wonderful art and components and everything else is great, I do think that there is something fundamentally sad and tragic about these great designs not being able to be experienced. And it's very much like taking a Stradivarius violin and sticking it in a museum for it never to be played. So that's that's how I'm looking at it. How about you, Anthony? I mean, to some degree, yeah. But the thing is, it's like I own, I don't, I don't know, bleep bleep, too many games. I'm not gonna like, <laughs> censored. Let's not go through hey. that. That's our that's our Patreon level. You guys got to back at Patreon on how many games we own. But, <laughs> um, but. I, there's a lot of games I own that I've never actually played my own copy of, but I've played, you know, like I own a sure. few 18 XX games. And when we play those, I tend to play uh friend of the pod, Michael's copies. Cause he, you know, invites us over and he man, not now, obviously, but in the past, he's the one who would host for that. And so I'm happy to own those. And I really enjoy punching them and organizing them and having it all there and being able to pull it out and look at the rule book and go through the components. And to me, that's a big part of it. Like one of my favorite times of the year is when we get home from a convention and I have like 40 or 50 games, including all the review copies that I get to open and punch and organize. And I'm like, oh, yeah. some of these I'm never going to play, but it's legitimately just a fun thing I get to do for a week every year. Not this year, but every other year. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a certain Zen nature of unboxing and punching and placing and organizing and such. So, yeah. All right, well, there you go, Rico. Two really good arguments. I don't know who won, but maybe you can let us know which one you think won. So collecting or playing, you know, where's the line here? So, Anthony, I got a question here from Drew, and Drew asks, what are some of your favorite games with your family and children? And how do you choose those games? Ah, good question, Drew. Um the thing about children's games and family games, and I've realized this as my kids have gotten older, is that the answer that you will give as a parent changes constantly because your kids mature and they get interested in other stuff, right? So right now, my kid's favorite game is legitimately Skull King. Like, we've played it 13 times in the last seven days. They love that game. I would never recommend that to other parents for their kids because, it's it. I mean, it's eight and up, but it's not really a kid's game. You know, it's it's kind of complicated to wrap your head around in certain areas. And my five-year-old certainly was guessing for at least the first half of those plays. But that said, you know, what I'm finding is games that are just a single deck of cards, 
like at the age they are now. A single deck of cards, limited components, not too much stuff on the board to get distracted by, not too much setup. My son loves big, huge adventure games, but if they require me to sit down and spend 45 minutes setting it up and organizing the decks and getting the pieces out, he gets bored and wanders away. So it needs to be simple. It needs to be straightforward and consolidated as much as possible. So even the games that I've been excited to get out for him, like Lord of the Rings or, you know, Imperial Assault. He's like, I can't. <laughs> he gets distracted. <laughs> but like a Mice and Mystics, which I can set up in 10 minutes, is perfect because they have the patience to sit there and they can play with the toys and they get ready for it. So I don't know. Like it definitely falls along those lines. I also find like two player games patchwork or patchwork express if your kids are a little younger has been really great because it's a really easy one to teach and you can just help them move and they don't fight with each other i've definitely found we're moving away from hobby games at this age group i know that's the go-to if your kids are young you know hobby games all the way my little scythe is fantastic at as young as like four years old she had no problem with that but it's now that they're getting older it's definitely uh a little bit of everything, honestly. Anything off my shelf that says 10 and up, I feel comfortable at least showing to them. And if it's 8 and up, I feel like we can play it. Sure. I think for my niece, who is, you know, more or less getting to three years old, she's a little bit out of board gaming. I mean, she has a, a copy of Candyland, which she's just like, hey, let's open it up. All right, we opened <laughs> it. Let's dump it. We dumped it. Done. So it's kind of like Tom's opening <laughs> videos where he's like, oh, look, a thing. And you're like, yeah, that was great. So she's getting into, she's starting to pick up things, which is great. So eventually, I guess within a year or so, she'll be into the Haba area of board gaming. For my family, I try to do two things. First off, I try to figure out what is it that they're interested in as far as the theme is concerned and or what games, classic board games, have they played previously? This way I can find something that's maybe just a step up or maybe just into gateway gaming. So I mentioned my mom and sister are big Scrabble players. And I was like, oh, all right, well, this is a great opportunity for paperback and hardback because it's spelling games. It's different. It's deck building as far as that's concerned, but it's still in the same realm and they're used to that. I have to keep in mind that it's not a matter of intelligence as much it's a matter of complexity and depth of rules so mm -hmm. if the rules teach goes you know 20 minutes or you know longer i'm going to start to lose them it's like oh and then and then you do this and this is another possibility and it's like and they're like when and i'm like no no, no <laughs> it's not it's not hard they're like yeah but we're not going to remember all these rules which again i understand because many of a game have i sat through <laughs> just like you know an hour or so of the rules but i actually like that so but if the rule explanation goes on too long you're gonna lose people so not a matter of intelligence or even complexity but if it just takes a long time to explain you will lose people as far as that's concerned i try co-ops uh my sister's a pretty competitive person so she's not a big fan but co-ops are pretty good uh in particular i find the best piece of advice i could give you is pick games that have completely open information. This way you can guide people on you know choices and actions. If you have any cards that need to be hidden or anything like that, then there's going to be a problem kind of like guiding them through the game. Yeah, no, that's totally true. And I, I think 
when they're really little, it's fine. You can kind of look over their shoulder and help them with their cards and just pretend you don't know what they have. But they get a little bit older. You, you need to know that they can handle the information that you give them and sure. use it properly. Because they will get, especially like children, especially like not even necessarily young children, like children in general, will get legitimately upset if they play the game wrong. And then you say, yeah. oh, you did it wrong and you lost. Sure. They do not like that. No. <laughs> One other thing I wanted to throw out there for kids, though, is role-playing games. And I found that every child I've interacted with, both of my kids, my sister when she was younger, my son's friends, they absolutely love tabletop role-playing games. And it's harder when they're younger and they can't read very well. Um, so I got No Thank You Evil. It's a really, really good like introduction to this. Mm -hmm. But once they're a little bit older and they can read okay, like seven, eight years old, throw whatever at them as long as it's age appropriate and they will soak it up like a sponge and spit it all back at you in a way that you could never possibly do like just my son runs around yelling at armor classes and different mobs I, like i don't even remember like but i guess he got a copy of one of my monster manuals and he memorized it so like <laughs> it's they they go to camp they run around they play these things they love it they have imaginations in a way we can't fathom so you know if you're up for it definitely definitely something to check out all right, so next up on the list, we have Tim, um, who says, you've been playing games for a long time. How do you keep your interest up in the hobby? Uh, playing old and beloved games, exploring new games, mechanics, and themes, getting together with good friends, something else, some combination of the above. And then conversely to that, what bores you or turns you off about the hobby? Wow, that's a great question, Tim. Less than a week or so, in fact, we're going to hit our seventh anniversary. So that'll actually be next week's episode. And it's challenging. You know, games do have a certain grind element to it, whether it's grinding through the rule book or grinding through the first play or just grinding to get people to the table. It can wear on you at times. What I really find so wondrous about the hobby and about board games in general is the level of complexity that goes into every game design. So as we were talking about before... I always believe that you should get the games to the table. But back in the day, you know, I had more RPG manuals and monster books and variations of that than I did friends who actually wanted to play that stuff. But the minutiae of like, oh, this armor class, this special ability, this is how these things would pair together or work out. And that's even more so true in board games because you have this completed wondrous design that a designer had like a thousand different ideas about and kind of did some alchemy and condensed it into a box. So I think it's still keeping a sense of wonder and awe when you open a game box and, you know, you kind of fuss with the pieces and you go through the rule book and you see the different combinations and such. The exciting moments of that are really important. So that's always going to be probably the biggest thing. Uh, in particular, playing new games is something that really excites me a lot more than playing old games that I like a lot, even though sometimes you discover new ways to play or new interesting dynamics. I like something new. I, I like the. Uh, I am definitely a hotness guy. Like I like to see what's the new way they innovated you know, deck building. What did they do that was radically different as far as that's concerned? And as far as friends and such and people on the outside, I love teaching games. 
So if I can introduce somebody to the hobby and they walk away or they jump on their phone to buy a game, I am I felt like I made it. You know, I would rather teach a game than win a game any day of the week. You know, if someone gets that kind of experience and enjoys themselves, done. I mean, one of the best things is when you teach a game and they win, you feel like you you had an even bigger accomplishment. You're like, I did a thing. Everyone's like, you lost. I'm like, no, but I taught the game and they won the game and they enjoyed the game. So, yeah. So the the joy that other people have is is really uh, keeps me going. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a funny thing because this is a, a very prescient question, I think, for the uh, current situation. Like, we're at home. I've seen a lot of people posting on like Reddit and BGG about, I just don't even really want to play. Should I get rid of my collection? Like, when am I ever going to see people again? And it's a totally normal, understandable feeling when you're just like trapped inside all the time and you can't get with your game groups. But for me, like, there's a lot of other parts of the hobby. Like, going back to Rico's question about, you know, other ways to engage with the hobby, I like pulling things out and organizing them. I like going through, like, my Lord of the Rings cards or my Destiny dice. I like painting things. And so these are the types of things when I'm starting to feel just like, ugh, I can't learn another rule book right now. <laughs> I'm just like, you know what? I'm just going to paint some miniatures or something. Or I'm going to, you know, pull out a game that I never got around to bagging or sleeving. And I'm, I'm going to do that while I'm watching TV. Just to, like, re-engage something <laughs> in my brain. Because, <laughs> you know, I'll hit that point where I'm like, oh, I need to play this. I got the rule book. I just need to go through the rule book. We need to talk about it in the podcast. And I don't want to. And that's a really hard hurdle to get over. And especially right now when you can't get out and actually engage with people to do that, it's like, good God, this is so hard. So that's a huge part of it. I just try to find other ways to engage with the hobby. I do like to teach as well. Fun. I like being the guy who shows up having read the rule book and ready to go and <laughs> just being like, all right, I got this. All right. Everybody watch the video. No, it's fine. I got this. Don't worry about it. You know, I don't like being the guy three days later where someone's like, um, I went on BGG after we played and they said you got this one rule wrong because you... <laughs> you didn't read the appendix of this site like yeah i know but you didn't read the book at all so it's fine um it's 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 a different part of it but yeah I, I, there's definitely a lot of fun to be had outside of just straight up playing games and it comes and goes depending on i don't know general mood exhaustion other things in life sure all right anthony we have a question here from ac and ac asks do you ever play prototypes not really. No. <laughs> like, early on in the podcast, we played a few prototypes. We, you know, when we were early, we weren't getting review copies. When we were just excited to play anything and had limited budgets for this stuff, we took what was offered and there was some pretty good stuff in there. Like we played an early copy of Between Two Cities, which was really fun. We played that in New Jersey. And yeah, that was kind of cool to have like an early copy of that. We played an early copy of Evolution, uh, the prototype. Mm -hmm. And it was such an early copy, we didn't even really like it very much. Uh, like, it needed work. But I found the problem with prototypes is that, yeah, the rules tend not to be final or very well written. The pieces aren't great. It's hard to take photographs or do anything with it because it's just not representative of the game. So these days, unless it's a friend who's making a game, which is awesome and you want to engage with it, or if you're at a convention and there's an opportunity to try something new, like Eric Lang pulls out a box, you know, with crate tape on it. And he's like, this is my new thing. You want to try this prototype? I'm like, heck yeah, I do. Are you crazy? <laughs> I 
I'm, I'm, I tend to steer clear of prototypes. Sure. Yeah, we've been asked, you know, to kind of finish off this question here, AC, we've been asked to provide detailed feedback on prototypes, and we've done that, especially as Anthony said early on, and I had a, a sister podcast, Kicking the Habit, and a lot of times we would get prototypes from Kickstarter, and I would review those, and sometimes help out designers with some issues, especially in the rule book. I think the biggest Kickstarter memory slash... <laughs> I guess prototype kind of memory, all prototypes, so to speak, was I was able to play an early, early, early prototype version of Century Spice Road. And I was like, oh, you know, this is not bad. I, I actually like this. And at the and as Anthony was mentioning, like we kind of shied away from prototypes. And in particular, because when you do the podcast, it's really hard to communicate, you know, where in status a prototype is and when you'll actually be able to see it in the market. People want to see things that they could actually play and buy. So prototypes, it, it doesn't really play well for the podcast in, in general. So that's generally, you know, why we've kind of stayed away from that. And as far as Kickstarter campaigns, again, we like to do full reviews. I, I think as far as a podcast is concerned, we really like to you know, dive deep into the rule book, the components, the artwork, everything that's there. And when you get a prototype from a Kickstarter, very few elements are, are available in that. So it becomes more of an issue as far as like trying to explain to an audience, hey, imagine this, like this instead of this. But we've done some. We've done some uh, Kickstarter videos and we've done, you know, showed off some prototypes in the past. Yeah, yeah. So um, moving on here, we got a Brian asked, has the hobby, the board game hobby reached its zenith? Do you think Ooh, interest boy. is increasing or decreasing? So, and specifically, he, he wants to us to dive a little bit into whether Kickstarter is good or bad for the hobby. That's, that's a really challenging question. I, I think it's something that we've been watching for about a decade now, and it certainly has been trending up as far as interest and quality. And I think you and I have said this a number of times, Anthony, that maybe we haven't seen as many highest highs or lowest lows, but in general, the vast majority of board games that come out these days are solid. Like, it's not like it was five years ago where it was like there was so much chaff. Like, oh, this is not good, and this is not good, and this is broken, this is a problem. Like, most games these days are like, no, this is good. This is solid. This is fine. This is good. This is solid. I don't think we've reached a zenith yet. I think that we still have a while to go. I do think that once, and it's starting to happen, as board gaming kind of gets into the big box stores, gets pushed back, gets back in, gets pushed back, that kind of give and take wave, so to speak. Once it does hit a mass market, maybe like in Germany or such, where hobby board games are in everyone's closet, so to speak, then there'll be real kinds of crazy money, and then we'll see the peak. We'll see real money go into the hobby board games you love above and beyond, and you'll see you know, rule books that'll be pristine. You'll see components that are going to be outrageous. You're going to see everything done to the best degree possible. I don't think we're there yet, but I think that we're only a couple of years off from getting up there 
as far as Kickstarter, that's a harder question. Again, looking at this for like the last decade or so and running the Kickstarting podcast, there was always this concern from the industry that Kickstarter was going to kill board gaming. That at some point, and in fact at multiple points, there would be a just a board game that would be so big and would tank, like too big to fail kind of situation, that it would just destroy the, you know, the designer hobby industry. That never really happened. There were some games that, of course, did not get published, and there were some issues and a scandal here and there, but it was never so big that it sunk the industry at all. In fact, I've been looking back at my Kickstarter podcast, and I'm like, wow, there were so many bad games. But you look now on Kickstarter, it's it's quite the opposite. It's hard to find the bad games on there. I think while there was a lot of concern, fear, and anxiety, I think we can now say that Kickstarter has been an overall general good for the industry. You know, games that would never have been published before have been published. Especially the big big games like Gloomhaven would never have seen a you know store shelf just because it's too big and it's too expensive. But Kickstarter it happens. You know, kicks you know, Kickstarter has allowed a Kingdom Death Monster. Again, that would just never been on a shelf just randomly, or maybe just one copy. So yeah, that's that's how I look at it. How about you, Anthony? Yeah, I think it's easy to get into that, especially if you've been in the hobby for a while, to be like, oh, it's not as good, and you've got Asmodee buying up all the companies, and you know, there's oversaturation with like 1,800 new games a year, and that's all true, um, and a lot of people try to compare it to like the comics or the video game industries, but I don't know that those are apt comparisons, because neither of those industries really support with with exceptions, of course, but it's rare for like one person to just go out, create this magnum opus, put it out there, and have it become the biggest thing in the industry. You know, it has happened in video games. You get things like Farmville, or not Farmville, uh, Stardew Valley, or, or something like that. It makes a ton of money from one guy making a game, but that's the exception. Whereas here in, in the board gaming industry, we have people launching all sorts of stuff on Kickstarter, like you said, that we would never ever see. So... I don't know that it's zenith or it's bad or going down. It's just, yeah, the the average level of the games has raised, which makes them look all average. And the method of distribution and production has changed a lot. So I'm more interested to see how it looks in, you know, three, four years from now, especially coming out of, you know, the current situation, than to say, oh, or it's all bad now. Because <laughs> I think I think we'll be good. Yeah, I, I think especially in 2020 with, you know, COVID and everything else that's gone on and the, the loss of a lot of local friendly game stores, I, I think if we didn't have Kickstarter, we a much, much worse place than we are right now. All right, Anthony, uh, Carlos asks, when was the last time you two actually played a game in person? What game and who won? Remember exactly what game it was, but it wasn't that long ago. It was like three weeks before the lockdown, honestly. It was like really sure. lucky. <laughs> so to New York around your birthday and yeah. we hung out for a few days and we played a bunch of stuff. Uh, we played mm -hmm. clinic. We played skull King. <laughs> I mentioned that we played PAX premier. Um, we mm -hmm. attempted to play Kanban. Um, <laughs> Until I unintentionally flipped the table there. Yeah. <laughs> we had, a, we had an issue with a, a very cheap or I guess who knows, you know, malfunctioning table of some sort, but yeah, it was really good. We played a lot of good stuff. Like, 
we tried to get an 18xx to the table didn't quite work out but we had a, a lot of big games we managed to get out yeah we played bus uh we played the crew yeah we played uh i think maracaibo we played also i mean we, oh, we played, played a lot of we did yeah it was tramways a, it was a play tramways 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 too yeah yeah no we got a lot of games to the table that weekend that was at the uh in part at the morristown convention and also at one of the local new jersey meetup groups so nothing super super heavy which was the plan but we got everything else at the table I guess it depends on what was the last game in person. I don't remember what the last game was, but we did play a lot of games together, and I think you and I had a share of the wins uh, on the games. Well, I can look it up because I log all of these things. So let me see, as I scroll back through this, who won the last game? Well, I won the last digital game, in fact. It ended yesterday. (laughs) (laughs) I won by one point. Yeah. I, you know, that, that game was nonsense though. Cause we talked about this, but I had a one in Marco Polo and I went to reroll <laughs> twice and it rolled a one each time. And I'm pretty certain the computer just does that. So whatever conspiracy theory. Well, it's okay. We should also add at this point, we were lucky enough to have one of our Patreon backers join us at the electronic table at the board gaming table online to play a game. And if you would like to see the hilarity that is us playing games together online jump on patreon we would love to have you at the table and play some games with you absolutely all right so bringing up the last game that we successfully completed in person it was uh it was the crew nobody won we all lost (laughs) (laughs) oh well play the crew there are no winners (laughs) yeah except for the uh kenner spiel that it won yeah, exactly. <laughs> All righty. So David asks, what would you say have been the most memorable moments you've had gaming? It's a nice blanket question for you. Whew. That's, there's been a lot of memorable moments. I'm going to run through some super quick. So I played a game of Agricola way back in the day, probably eight plus years ago that I remember being able to feed my people miraculously, and I was super thrilled. And again, super thrilled at a game where you're farming. That was pretty crazy. Uh, Let's see, what else? I had a fantastic tournament at Star Trek Attack Wing, and I won the whole kit and caboodle, including a giant Deep Space Nine, put together a fantastic meta, and just knocked everyone out left and right, did not lose one single match or even one single ship. So that was a super kind of big accomplishment as far as that's concerned. And I guess I guess playing with Vitalicerta or being taught by Vitalicerta when we were playing Lisboa, I think was a really fantastic moment because he was just like regular guy playing a game, teaching us the game and just like huffing and puffing like everything else. And that was pretty amazing. Yeah, I was going to mention that one first because that was that oh, was actually my birthday. That. No, no, it's good. It was an amazing <laughs> moment. But that was my birthday. And we had gotten the tickets for that thinking he might be teaching it. But we got early tickets and he wasn't there when we went over there. Yeah. And we we're like, oh, that stinks. But then like 40 minutes in, he came over and took over the teach. And he's like, I'm Vitala Serta. I'm amazing. Let's have fun. <laughs> it's like, 
gets it, it's it's kind of funny. It, you you don't you think you get to a certain age and you and you don't do the fanboy thing, but you still do the fanboy thing. Oh my god, yeah. Well, that's my other memory is playing um, it happens with Stefan Feld, and he was <laughs> wow. at, so he was at GenCon last year, and they sent out a message being like, "Hey, you can come play a game of Stefan Feld. Just message us so we know how many people are coming." And so I signed up, of course, because obviously. And I get there, and there's like 20 people. And I'm like, oh, man, we're not going to actually get to hang out with him. But he came over for like the last 20 minutes or so and just sat there, and we were asking him questions. He was kind enough to take a photo with me. It was really cool. So that was, that was a huge one. I've played a few games with different designers at conventions that it's always kind of fun. Like Eric Lang stopped in for a demo I was doing of Blood Rage way back when. That was kind of cool, even, you know, not even knowing him as well as we know him now. But I think the biggest memory, and I'm surprised he didn't mention it, is our Defenders of the Realm game from... I was going to mention it, but I wanted to leave it to you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so this was this was all of us back in, like, our second Extra Life event um, in New Jersey. You'll have to remind me exactly where. But sure. we played Defenders of the Realm. It was late. It was, I don't know, 10, 11 o'clock at night, whatever it was. And we got to the very last die roll and you know it's 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 a cooperative game it's random it's dice but it could have gone either way and we hit it and people legitimately jumping out of their chairs cheering screaming like you hear about it but you don't generally (laughs) do that right it's still a board game you still have some self-consciousness you're like i don't jump out of my chair but we were legitimately daniel was like hooting and hollering (laughs) it was great it was was really really great yeah, it was it was one of the best moments of gaming for sure. And you did the die roll, so I, I wanted to leave that to you. Yeah, yeah, that's right. It's funny, like I forget that sometimes because it is a cooperative game. It feels like we were all yeah. involved, but like, yeah, I threw that die. <laughs> <laughs> you did your thing. All right, Eric has asked us a couple questions here, so let's start off with the first one. Anthony? What is your favorite color? Now, I'm assuming this is board game related. I have become a red player because nobody seems to want it. So that is now my color. I'm going to answer this because I think this is good to back to back. I also did not care about board game colors. And typically the red and blue were always taken, followed by yellow. So it was like, all right, what's the fourth color? Whatever the, the, the secondary color is. And... I was, you know, I said, you know what, I'll pick black. I really liked black as a color. When we did our first kind of like teaser video for Board Gamers Anonymous, I gave everyone a meeple color and mine was the black meeple. We were doing a Voltron kind of thing. And that was the color I always gravitated towards. But most board games don't have, you know, black player color. So what was typically happening was blue, red, and yellow, which again, primary, you know, those colors are being taken. So I was like, again, I don't care. It's fine. And then I would get green. And then I was just like, all right, I'm green. I'm green. I'm green. To the point where when I sometimes when I play a board game, it's very hard for me to unlock from the fact that I am not playing green in this board game. Somebody else is. Please don't move their stuff. <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> sometimes. Yeah. Every single time. Don't don't well, play. Don't play green if you're playing against Chris. It's no good. I, I'm sure there's one or two times I didn't do it, but yeah, that, that's how that's how green occurred. So now I always play green because, you know, for the benefit of the people at the table. And I'll tell people, I'm like, look, if you want to play green, play green. Just know I'm probably going to move your stuff at some point. Or sometimes when I play a game, like we just mentioned this recent game of Marco Polo, I wasn't playing green. 
and I kept looking. I'm like, oh, I'm in really, I'm in a really good position. <laughs> and then I'm like, wait a minute, I'm not green, I'm yellow. <laughs> Damn it, I did it again. <laughs> so that happens all the time. All right, Anthony, second question here: Who is your favorite designer? Ooh, we did this not too long ago. So I, we actually just mentioned both of them. Stefan Feld is very much up there, but I think Vital Lacerda has managed to pass him in recent years with the fact that every single one of his games is amazing. Stefan Feld has way more games, but there are a few of them that I'm less enthused about, especially the last few games that have come out. A couple are good, a couple are meh, but none of them are like, this is amazing, you have to play this. Vital Lacerda, though, every single game he releases is just so good. So, so good. And I have to buy all of them because they're just perfect sure. so he has definitely risen to the top for me yeah i'm gonna kind of follow your lead on that feld historically followed by vital but uh suchi has had a special place in my heart from way back when i i think his mechanics are so revolutionary and innovative that if i if i saw a table with him i would clearly jump over several people to get to play a game with him. All right, Anthony. And last question here from Eric. Why are you guys so good at podcasting? Oh man. I mean, it's just, you know how it is. Oh, thanks Eric. <laughs> <laughs> That's all we got. Yeah. <laughs> thanks. <laughs> We're very humble. <laughs> I, I think in a alternate universe or a formal life, I always, thought of myself or had wanted to be the movie trailer guy. So like in a world where men need to play board games, you know, that kind of situation. So that somehow translated to this. So I, I mean, and also because, you know, I love teaching games and if you know me personally, I'm much more introverted than I come off. But when I'm talking about board games, when I'm teaching pretty much anything, or when I'm working with people, it really, it, so, something else happens. It, it definitely, I definitely step up to that. So I really have a love and passion for it. And there's nobody out there who's more concerned with you all getting the best games possible for the best prices possible and the most enjoyment possible. So I take it as a personal crusade that you have the best information possible. So it's something that is something very important to me. And I, and I never slack on that end. All right. Yeah, no, that's fantastic. I mean, I, I guess I kind of agree. I just, I've always had this thing in my life where I, I want to create content for things I like. It's just, you know, I'm a writer by trade. I just like producing things. And so podcasting was kind of the natural direction to take at the time when we got into board gaming and it's worked out well. I mean, we have a lot of experience doing it. I'm even more introverted than Chris somehow. <laughs> if you meet me in person, like if you meet me at a convention, I'm like, what's up? <laughs> I don't have much for you. This is a great outlet where you don't have to be like that. And it's fun to talk about it and know that a bunch of people are listening. And it's not necessarily that stress of having to like hold a conversation in person, which I will absolutely do. And I love meeting people and playing games. Like once I get to know you, it's awesome. But it's, this is, you know, just a really cool way to do it. All right. So Adrian says, what game or games are you looking forward to playing once you can have a regular game day or night again? Well, I talked about this a little bit. 
probably the first game needs to be Twilight Imperium 4. Yes. Ideally now at this point, with the expansion, if, yep. if that, <laughs> depending on when we finally get out of here, but I need something incredibly epic and satisfying because I, I, I literally live in a space where my board games surround every inch of where I live and they mock me. They mock me, Anthony, and I need to kind of like get something magnificent to the table. And another game that I've been planning with friends to play is Archmage. Again, another epic Euro game, you know, massive kind of stuff. So those two games are already kind of like locked in because I, I, I just got those games and then everything hit. So those games are going to hit the table first. 100% agree. It's got to be big. It's got to be long, really long. Um, I, I would agree with TI4, especially because the expansion is going to be out before we have a chance to play it. So that will be like <laughs> itching to play that. With six, though, I'm not doing eight people. That's crazy. Oh, you got to do eight people. Come no, on, man. You're insane. I'm not doing that. <laughs> um, the game is long enough. Uh, yeah, and then like the, the Arkwright. Um, there's another one that card game just went up on Kickstarter, but the original board game is fantastic and just don't get a chance to play it because it's so long and difficult to get to the table. And then 18XX, there are ways to play it online. I don't love them. I like it because I get to play the games I enjoy. That's the only way to do it. But spatially, it's hard to kind of see all the information at once because it's on different screens and it just... Taking your turns, if you're not taking them live, is very difficult because you lose the thread of the math you're trying to do. So that is one, really any of them, just getting one of those back to the table would be fantastic because it's, it's been so long at this point. And then Adrian has a follow-up to that. If you could pick a designer, the theme, and up to two mechanics for your ultimate game, what would they be? Wow, that's that's really rough too. I know. <laughs> Man, that's that, that deserves its own episode as well. I guess off the top of my head, if I had to pick a designer, and the reason why I'm picking this designer is again because, you know, if you if you put together a crew to to pull a heist, you need the wild card. You need you need somebody who can come in there and just do something innovative, unexpected. So that's gonna be Suchi for me, just because I'm gonna give you mechanics that are already been out there tableau building i am a huge tableau building fan so if a game has a tableau i am absolutely positively in on that and i guess if i was going to do something a little different i probably would want some sort of tableau builder that maybe had something to do with a let's say like a civilization thing where it was multiple eras of kind of building up and again, I don't want to play something I've already played because I played a lot of those things before, but a tableau building that had multiple ages, that was kind of a big epic game would probably be uh, something I'd like to say. Yeah, that's a good answer. Um, I'm trying to think like who I would want to design like a specific type of game. Like I don't, I don't have like one type of game or one genre of game that I like latch onto. I tend to like heavier games, but I'll play anything, you know, and I feel like for me, the one area of gaming that occasionally has made the crossover, but not as much into like heavier types of stuff is like 
the adventure miniatures genre, like all the stuff you see on Kickstarter with all the minis and the dice rolling. And some of those are a little more Euro-y. Some of them are more war game-ish. So there's a little more thinking to go along with them. But generally, I don't know. They don't, the gameplay itself doesn't always hold up once I get my hands on it. So I would love to see, you know, one of the big um, Euro designers like a Lacerda or a Feld or an Uwe take take a crack at something crazy like just a miniature war game or something you know something you'd never expect to see but you know maybe they could pull it off maybe they could do something different or interesting or you know i know martin wallace had wildlands not too long ago which was kind of like a his take on miniature games with like the the deck building elements i would like to see that from you know some of my favorite designers as well all right anthony we have francesco here who has a bunch of questions for you you ready let's do it all right so first up have you ever designed a game and would you be interested in doing it no and i don't think so <laughs> like um it's on it like of all the things i've done in board gaming it's one area where i just have never gotten the itch or had a bug or an idea or anything i'm just like i'm happy to play other people's games i'm happy to paint them i'm happy to talk about them but i don't necessarily want to make one for me, yes. I I actually spent a couple of hours. It just hit me one day. I was in my apartment and I was like, huh, huh. And I actually, somewhere, I have the schematics for a board game design, some borrowed mechanics here and there, and, you know, a theme that I think would kind of work. And it just all hit me at once. I wrote everything down that I could possibly think of about it. And then I put it away, and I haven't come back to it. It's been several years at this point. So, yeah, I'd like to actually be able to do that at some point. The challenge happens to be that playtesting and all the different revisions and prototypes is so time-consuming. I just don't know when I would be able to do that. But, yeah, there there's a couple of designs generally in mind that I would love to be able to get to the table. All right, Anthony, his second question Will you be doing any videos in the future? Unboxing, reviews, playthroughs, how to play? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I cut short because we do have some big plans coming up in the not too distant future that we're not really ready to talk about or announce or, or run down yet. But I will say that there is some video content that we are preparing and we have a lot of ideas for it. So it let's just say it'll be interesting. It'll be exciting. And I think somewhat surprising probably to a lot of you. So uh, yeah, keep your eyes peeled for that. What he said. Nope. <laughs> it's going to be epic. It's going to be epic. All right, Anthony, your entire collection is about to disappear. Don't worry. Fire flood, black hole, you know, you name it. No, which, th which three games <laughs> do you save? Oh man. <sighs> This no. is Francesco, you suck. This question's hard. Um <laughs> All right. So it's not gonna be my three favorite games. It's gonna be the games that have the most sentimental value to me. Number one is my copy of Mice and Mystics. It is the first like game that my wife purchased for me. It was like for my birthday, the year we got into board gaming, and I've painted all the pieces. So I don't want to lose that. That would stink. War of the Ring, because it is my favorite game, uh, but I've yeah. also invested a lot of money in upgrading various pieces and boards sure. and anniversary edition expansions. And like, 
it's not just the cost. It's just some of these things you can't even get anymore. And then the last one, that's a really tricky question. I feel like I'd want it to be something that I play a lot. So either my battered up, beaten up copy of Terraforming Mars, which gets a ton of play and I could easily get to the table anytime I want, or or something simpler, you know, like my collection of um, Arkham LCG. That would keep me busy for a very long time. I've invested pretty heavily in that I have all the stuff and I haven't gone through it all yet. So I think that would keep me busy while I rebuild the rest of it. For me, that's going to be a couple interesting picks here. So first up, the designer edition of Small World, which is pretty much a small crate. And it's it's huge. It's It's grand. It's wondrous. Small World is one of my favorite games. It's the largest, craziest purchase I ever made, and I'm glad to own it. This is definitely going to be one of those kind of like heirlooms that I'm hopefully going to be able to pass down. As far as like normal board games are concerned, probably my copy of Lisboa, signed by Vitella Serta. Uh, original copy of Coliseum that I found when Anthony and I went around New Jersey and just stumbled across it at a friendly local game store. And it was, at the time, it was unthinkable that this game was ever going to be reprinted because there was all these legal issues from Days of Wonder. And I remember picking that up. I remember us playing it. And then just, like, amazement of just finding that game was utterly fantastic. And last but not least, we talked about this briefly, my copy of Defenders of the Realm, where we had that fantastic game, Defenders of the Realm is one of, if not my favorite board game of all time. So, and I have a bunch of the extra stuff that comes along with that. So there you go, my friend. Just stay away from our houses with all your destructions and black holes and fires and floods. (laughs) Yeah, stop trying to destroy my stuff. Come on. (laughs) Keep my stuff. (laughs) All right. And Francesco's last question here, Anthony, do you have any house rules for any games? My most beloved one, and maybe also the only one, is the drafting every turn for Terraforming Mars. I'm super eager to try house rules that people adopt regularly. Uh, yeah, I mean, that would be my answer. Um, to the point where I do not want to play that game without it. And when your friend in New Jersey tries to make me do it, I got very grumpy. You did? So, just... <laughs> no, I it's... I don't know. That game is, it's better with the draft, in my opinion. And that's, you know, simple as it gets. We've recently discussed uh, adopting the, um, the house rule, or I'm not even sure it's a house rule or a variant, but for a food chain magnet, there's the milestone, the CFO milestone, where you get the plus 50% for the first person to get the hundred bucks. And it always makes everybody grumpy (laughs) because it's, you know, whoever's in the lead is suddenly making even more money. So we're going to adopt that probably. And that'll, I wouldn't imagine it, that would change because it always seemed like kind of a silly uh, milestone to have. But otherwise, I don't do a lot of house ruling, to be honest. Usually, if the rules are wonky enough that they don't really work as is, it just the game's probably not very good. I would have to look at each individual game, Francesco, and I'll, I'll try to get back to you on this if there's any specific rules. But there are always two general rules for me that are house rules when I play any board game. First up is if the game has expansions... I always play with the expansions. Again, unless the expansion is somewhat broke or bad, I'm always playing with the expansions. Second, if the game has asymmetrical powers or different 
you know, choices, whether it's Wonder Boards and Seven Wonders or Spirit Island or, you know, some games will say to you, like, and like in Wards of Lord Deep, like, you get a secret lord and that's your lord. No. If there is a variety of choices and you could equally distribute the possibilities to everyone to choose from, whether it's secret or open information, you should do that. You should give everyone as much choice as possible of what they can, you know, play at the table within reason. So I'm always giving everybody every choice possible, whether it's even like Takedo. Like, oh, you get a choice of two possible, you know, Takedo travelers and you pick one. Like, nope, there's enough so everyone can choose from three. Why wouldn't you do that? I don't, I don't understand why you wouldn't do that. Like, I don't know. Like, you should always do that. That's definitely a house rule that should be in everyone's game because you should be able to enjoy and have a variety. I mean, some of the worst things in board gaming happens to be when you get the same role or the same civilization again and again and again. You're like, oh, okay, this again. So people, get choice. That's always a good thing. All right. And so last but not least, last question. And again, thank you to everybody who wrote in. These were fantastic. It's been a lot of fun to go through these. Our friend David over from the Facebook group, uh, Toy Toy Board Out, um, he posted this uh, for everybody there and asked, do you prefer a clear end game condition to trigger the final turns or even finish the game altogether? Or would you rather play until a set amount of turns like in Small World or Agricola, for example? I think, yeah. What do you think? <laughs> yeah, I like a, a clear set number of turns. I, I I just generally don't like a game where it's like, and it's done, and you're like, what? Huh? What happened? But I wanted to do I wanted to do my thing, and they're like, nope, it's over because they collected or got whatever they need to get, and I you know that's always a little troubling for me. Yeah, I mean, I always think specifically of Scythe. I don't like. I never liked how Scythe ended. Uh, to sure. the point where if I'm going to play that game, it better have the expansion where it does not end that way. So yeah, and, and any game really that le- ends like that, where it's pretty abrupt or unless it's really built into it, like a game like Inish, for example, that game, you know, the ending's coming, but you don't ever know exactly because people can stop it or push it along. And again, the expansion fixes that a little bit where it can only happen so many times. But I think it works in that case because that's the theme of the game. But if it's just like that to be like that, it can be kind of frustrating. Yeah, with Euro games, I want to feel like win or lose, I did a thing. And if I don't get to do that thing, win or lose, then it feels like I really didn't play a game. I, I like to build a strategy, play out the strategy, and see how the strategy worked out. So, you know, like if you play a game like Cosmic Encounter, it's possible that you never even play your turn. It just kind of ends because someone did a thing and the way everything kind of worked out. So, yeah, that's a thing. All right, so that's all our questions for our listener feedback episode. Again, thank you so very much for your questions, and thank you so very much for listening each and every week. It means so much to us that you do. And, if again, if you didn't get your questions up there, please hit us up on all the different social medias. We love to hear from you. It means so much to us. You are the reason why we do these episodes each and every week. So it's with the greatest of gratitude. All right, Anthony. So that's everything for this week. Until next time, this is Chris. And this is Anthony. And we'll save all of our listeners a seat at the table. 